episode 10 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss clarifiers, the nuts and bolts, and everything. Our guest today is John Gotchell, retired and undefeated account manager of aftermarket sales at West Tech Engineering. I want to remind you as well that you want to stay tuned for Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of the program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. Okay, I have been excited to talk to you about clarifiers, John. As I understand, your background is not just from the design of clarifiers, but the maintenance and servicing as well. Absolutely, and it's my absolute pleasure to be here this morning. Awesome. Why don't you give us a little more of your your background? Well, in 1967, I wandered out of college and into the water business. So I've been involved in it for a long, long time. And that includes not only the early years of uh, design and getting a product for this market, but also the as I progressed in my career, I actually got involved in the manufacture of the product. And then for 20 years, I worked with engineers to get uh, equipment specified and then also worked with clients to make sure they got what they wanted. And then beyond that, I was there for the Clean Water Act in 1972 and the implementation in 1973. And that showed us that the concern of the nation would produce money to build better wastewater treatment plants and go from primary to secondary treatment. And when we got involved in that, that is when this big rush of building plants occurred. Well, those plants now are 40 and 50 years old. So uh, my last six years has been trying to help plants rebuild or upgrade their equipment. And it's very true. There's been a lot of uh, systems I've gone to that, you know, 40, 50 years later, and I'm like, kind of on your last leg. Are you going to update soon? (laughs) Yeah, like you said, it all stemmed from that Clean Water Act. Okay, so let's just start from the basics. What is clarification? Actually, clarification is the result of sedimentation. It's the separation of liquids and solids. And what is interesting is that when all of this occurred, the only people that were very good at this were the people that were in the mining industry, because the mining industry is very concerned with the removal of solids, either uh-huh. for, the, for the capture of the solids or for, the, for getting rid of them. So companies that got involved in it were those companies, and they were very good at sedimentation. And uh, I learned an awful lot from some gentlemen that, that taught me way back in the early 70s about sedimentation. In separating liquids and solids, there are lots of things that you're concerned about that affect it. And I think uh, today we can go through those things so that you can optimize the separation of the liquids and solids. Great. And, you know, maybe some tips and tricks too as well. Absolutely. Always hang out with old people. (laughs) <laughs> experienced experienced exactly mellowed yeah. i think that uh i think the the early discussion ought to be the different kinds of processes that are involved in secondary treatment primary clarifiers handle influent flow to a wastewater treatment plant and they're heavier solids and the problem of separating liquids and solids is much easier so 
they are in the front end of the plant and uh, that pretty well handles itself. So I think we need to talk about the secondary processes. Agreed. And I know we're going to talk about fixed film and activated sludge as well. Yes. Uh, and before we get there, though, wanted to talk about what settling and removal efficiencies are based on. Because I know a lot of people have different ideas, but can you give us a good rule of thumb here? Well, there are three things going on in a, in a clarifier. Number one, an influent flow has a certain energy. And that energy has to be dissipated so that the solids have the opportunity to settle. As the influent flow comes into a plant, you have to keep the velocity at a certain level so that the solids don't settle out in the sewer or in the pipes leading into the plant. So that's your first problem, if you will. Then the second thing is the solids need to be flocculated so that they meet one another and get the heaviest solids you can possibly get so that the settling will start right away after you start to reduce the energy and the influent flow. And then the third problem is you got to get the solids out of the influent flow and out of the clarifier so that what comes out as a liquid is, is as particle-free as it possibly can be. In the last 15 years, I'm going to say, the permits for what is allowable out of a clarifier have been tightened considerably. And so we become even more concerned about how many solids we're removing. Mm -hmm. Well, and you talk here about uh, fixed film and activated sludge. Well, fixed film is a process that was available for primary treatment early on, even before the Clean Water Act. And that process produces a sludge that is very heavy and its settleability is very, very good. As a result, it is very easy to separate liquids and solids. The problem is, is that the solids aren't very heavy. And the solids include snails. Snails yeah. uh, love the environment of a fixed film because, you know, it, it provides them with a home and food. So the snails become a problem in that they, are, they somewhat overwhelm clarifiers at times. And I've seen that many times, and this is early on in the 70s. But the fixed film has, you know, it's a good process. It's a very economical process, and it takes a very low degree of energy. Mm -hmm. Then as the requirements for secondary process got more stringent, then the activated sludge process became available and gave us the ability to get all sorts of things out of an influent flow before it went to the clarifiers. The problem was is that was a harder, more difficult solid to settle out. Now, just mm -hmm. to give you a, an example, for trickling filters, the solids coming out of that process are between the 50 and 150 milligrams per liter. So it's a, it's a lighter uh, concentration of solids. The solids coming out of an activated sludge process, which has a longer duration, is 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams per liter. And it's uh, a lighter solid. It isn't a as settable solid. So those are the two problems that you're faced with. The uh, effluent 
quality for each is quite different as well. The effluent quality for a trickling filter process or a fixed film is 15 to 25 milligrams per liter. Whereas a good process, an activated sludge process can deliver a three to 15 milligrams per liter, which is as incredibly clean compared to what you're going to get out of a clarifier involved in a fixed film. Yeah. You know, I have been to a lot of fixed film facilities, but uh, there's only been one though where the snails were just so impressive. I, I think I got a little grossed out. Yeah. That was, I'm like, I don't get grossed out too often anymore in wastewater, but that one I was like, ugh. <laughs> That was too early much on, for me. <laughs> early on in my career, I got the uh, wonderful opportunity of removing snails with a shovel. So, oh, uh, I'm not jealous. <laughs> I, became, I became very much aware of the kind of difficulty they had. And uh, we we went down to this plant, and, and this was a, a desert type of plant. So uh-huh. the snails can't find many environments as good as the wastewater treatment plant. So they kind of congregated there. And that developed a real difficult problem in removal. And so we we got down there to find out just how many snails they had, and it was amazing. And so in rubber boots and shovels, we started trying to get to the bottom of the tank. Oh, oh wow. Okay, well. Well, there, there have been worse <laughs> times. <laughs> I know, but I just, I don't know why the snails just kind of took me off that time. Okay, well then, let's move on to density differentials or the difference in density. How does that impact suitability? Well, the two things that we need to talk about is, you know, extremely cold weather, and that exists in the northern part of the United States and in Canada. And Mm -hmm. in those circumstances, you know, you get to a point where the clarifier has to be covered or it has to be located in a building because you're you're going to set up the entire clarifier. The influent flow is of a temperature that it's not going to freeze immediately, but the surfaces do freeze. And one of the things you have to be really cognizant about is that your skimming mechanism is going to freeze too. And, yeah. and those break off, and that is good. But also, you've got a liquid that is not going to facilitate sedimentation. It's going to make it a, a considerably more difficult. The other situation is, in a desert circumstance, you're going to have incredibly warm water, and that is going to facilitate uh, uh, sedimentation in that the density of the water is less. But the other part of it is, is that a lot of times you change the nature of those solids and they don't settle as well because they don't they don't find each other. You know, you don't get the uh-huh. flocculation as well as with, say, a moderately temperatured uh, influent flow, which is the ideal and happens, you know, more frequently. The extreme cold and extreme heat you know, we're really talking that that is seasonal. So hopefully, yes, yes. <laughs> With all this climate change, hopefully and, seasonal. <laughs> yeah, unless it's 2020 and then no, nobody knows. Yeah, it's really true. OK, so during our conversation uh, previously, we had talked about hydraulic loading versus solids loading and how that impacted the clarifiers and you know, just how important it is to have that flow dispersed 
or you know spread out evenly throughout the clarifier but do you want to cover that a little more for us i would love to we talked a little bit early on that we've got these two elements that that we're dealing with and that's the solids and the hydraulics and the hydraulics dictate how much time we have for the sedimentation because if the hydraulics are really high then things are going through the clarifier quickly it, and we we need some time to facilitate mm -hmm. the sedimentation so we have to balance the hydraulic loading and the solids loading in doing that we have certain rules about what flow we can use per square foot of the clarifier and those those rules are really dependent on what kind of process you're using but also, you know, you've got to consider that before you size a clarifier for a different plant. Mm -hmm. Now, beyond that, you know, as far as the solids are concerned, you know, as we've discussed previously, you've got to look at the nature of those solids. But more than that, you've got to look at how you are handling those solids and how you are facilitating their finding each other. If you've got solids that are moving rapidly and they are moving towards the, the wall of the clarifier, they're going to climb right up that wall and they're going to leave the clarifier. And now you've got short-circuiting over the weir. If uh -huh. the solids come in and they're not being dispersed in the clarifier, then they're going to accumulate at the withdrawal in the center of that clarifier. And I'm talking about circular clarifiers here. Yeah. Then they're going to accumulate there. And the problem is that you get short circuiting. They don't have time enough to leave or to settle. So they just leave the clarifier almost at the same density as they entered. And that's the way you know if you've got short-circuiting, which is, uh, uh, that is the one problem you're trying to avoid, is not getting any sedimentation, not getting any clarification. Yeah, now, there's a, a lot of panic when that happens because permits are being violated, chlorine is up, to, you know, ramped up or whatever. Yes, you, you, you completely yeah, change day. the nature of the plant. That's absolutely yeah. right, Heather. The way you can do that is if you're monitoring the withdrawal, so you know what kind of solids are coming out of there, you will know if it, what kind of process is happening in that clarifier. Also, you know, everybody monitors solids coming over the weir just simply because that is how you meet or violate your permit. So yeah. you can tell if you've got a problem there. You're not, you're not settling out the solids. Now, there, there are a couple of things. You know, there's ways to address both of these problems. But Perfect. I think if, you, <laughs> if you're going to manage your clarifier <laughs> instead of operate it, then, then you, you need to do some testing, both on, in withdrawal and, uh, and the, the effluent quality. And, and once you do that, then then you have the starting point to go make other adjustments. Okay. Uh, now, we've talked about dye testing as well. Have you used that before in the field? Dye testing is absolute 
the absolute way to test what's going on in the clarifier. If you die test, you can follow the solids. You actually can document how many solids are, are settling out. And that's why it is when you get to a point where you're not really sure what's going on, dye testing is the way to make that more certain. Now, dye testing is not easy in that you have to make sure as you the dye enters the clarifiers that you have an equal flow and that you're, you're measuring the dye in all clarifiers or isolating the dye test to a single clarifier. Mm -hmm. I have in my career gone to the extreme of guaranteeing the process in a clarifier and we dye tested that clarifier and it was difficult because the separation of the influent flow was not completely equal so that we oh. we weren't getting equal flow to both clarifiers both the new one that i had guaranteed and the ones that existed that we were measuring the guaranteed one too so mm -hmm. we we had to do a lot of jockeying with the the die testing so that we made sure that we were getting equal flow in both of them so we could measure you know, how efficient both of them were. Well, and you know, you bring up a good point too, is that you, you could have two pieces of equipment side by side, supposedly getting the same feed and yet they don't operate the same. That is, uh, that has happened more than once. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's pretty standard. And the more Frankenstein the, uh, or piecemeal the, the facility has been as they've had to add on during the years, I see that more and more as well. We are like, well, we think it's getting 60% and then they find out it's getting 70% of the flow. You know, exactly. It's, and, and it's crazy. And it is it is so difficult to, I, it isn't crazy. What it is, is it, it just, it increases the difficulty of operating the plant. Now, yeah. the, you know, the hydraulics is much better understood now and much better measured now. So th this problem is starting to go away. But in older plants, and some of them are, are quite old, because I've spent the last six years in those plants, and mm -hmm. uh, they do not have really good separation of flow. And so they get unbalanced loading in their clarifiers. But what we've talked about here can help the operators get a better idea of how the clarifiers are performing and then make, make adjustments to uh, the clarifiers to make sure that they get the optimum settling and clarification so that they can consistently meet permit and also deliver a, a sludge that is easily uh, processed beyond the clarifier so that you can get rid of the sludge either in the digestion process or drying beds or whatever. But you, you also want to make sure that the sludge is easily disposed of. You know, it, it always is a marvel to me that you know, this one piece of equipment seems so quote unquote easy compared to, you know, some of the aerations or membranes and stuff like that, but how this one piece of equipment can literally make or break you. Exactly. Uh, it, it is the heartbeat it's of pretty the simple. Plant. Yep. It really, it really is the heartbeat of the plant. It, it is the last bastion of making sure that we protect the environment and that we don't kill people because yeah. that's really <laughs> our job. Yeah, very much so. Okay, uh, 
Did you want to talk about temperature and baffling as well here? Or? You know, baffling is, is one of my favorites because early on in my last career, my final career, a new type of clarifier came out and it included what we called an EDI, an energy dissipating inlet. And what it did was it managed that influent flow. It reduced the energy in that influent flow. And even more than that, it redirected that flow so that the solids found each other quicker. And it, it gave us a way to get heavier solids out of the feed well in a clarifier. And by doing that, now we have an efficiency where, number one, that effluent quality gets down to that 3 to 15 milligrams per liter. And then mm -hmm. even better than that is that we got heavier solids out of the clarifiers so that they were easier to dewater and they were much easier to dispose of. So baffling is really important. Now I'm going to talk about one other baffle. And that's a thing called the Stanford baffle. And it was, it was invented by operators because they saw, just visually saw solids crawling up the wall of the clarifier. They oh, were yes. coming out at a velocity that, you know, they, the solids were just being driven up the wall and over the weir. Mm -hmm. So they said, that's not good. And so they took uh, marine plywood and they created a baffle on the wall. And that baffle caught the solids, redirected those solids towards the center. And they just, they reduced the excess solids over the weir by 80%. So that oh, it awesome. was very, very effective. So we, uh, you know, the industry found different ways to make those Stanford baffles other than marine plywood bolted to the wall. But uh, <laughs> what, the principle is still the same. So if you take the, this double baffling, you can get this incredible efficiency. If you think about there's two to 3,000 milligrams per liter solids coming into a clarifier and only three to 15 are leaving, that's a 99.17% removal rate. That is pretty amazing. And that is the result of the things that we are going to talk about today and have talked about. They have provided us with clarifiers that will perform with that kind of removal. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. This talk reminds me of a site that I went and visited uh, where the baffles had actually, you know, through lack of maintenance or just life in general, it always happens when the vendor comes out, but uh, the baffle broke and had actually floated up to the top and it twisted and, you know, just screwed the whole clarifier. Uh, <laughs> that was a really bad day for them. I can imagine. I, th I think, uh, you know, you bring up a very important point, Heather, that these baffles do need maintenance, even though they are hanging on the wall. And, uh, you know, uh, things can come loose and, you know, you have to go through the normal maintenance and most plants do uh, tighten bolts. But you have to do that on the baffles as well. But there's something else that uh, is is a problem that is was not thought of when I first started with these uh, Stanford baffles. And that is that solids gather underneath them. And they collect to the point where they completely fill that area below the Stanford baffle. And when they do that, then, then there's a burst of solids that come out from under the baffle. 
and that burst can't be handled by the normal uh, handling of liquid. So the liquid dives towards the weir and goes over the weir, and you have a pretty dramatic violation of permit. So, <laughs> yes, very true. And, and it's just something that you have to consider and you have to do something about. And this is a, a wonderful example of you're going to have to take that clarifier down to make sure that that circumstance is not starting. And then more than that, you know, it isn't a bad idea to take a clarifier down and inspect it on some regular basis. And I don't know, you know, how often you can do that as a plant operator, but if you did that a couple times a year, I think it would absolutely be beautiful and you would make sure that nothing dramatic was going to happen during the rest of the year. I would agree with you. I'm just thinking of all those people that only have one clarifier uh, where they don't have that redundancy because it's a small package plant or small, you know, whatever. It can be really devastating when this, you know, simple piece of equipment, a baffle, breaks. I just, ooh, I hurt for the when I come out to the operators and they've had that kind of day. Absolutely. And, and uh, anytime something comes unattached, then it is an object that can cause more severe damage. And I I think uh, that is an interesting point you bring up, Heather, that there are plants that only have one primary, one secondary clarifier. If it goes down, they're done. Usually, if they've only got one, there is some way or create some way where you can hold some amount of the influent flow while you repair it. But bypass is the other option, and that is not a good option. Yeah, and it can be very expensive, I mean, not just with permits, but you know, putting yeah. the extra equipment in and rentals and stuff like that. Yeah, oh, Absolutely. I, I know that there are several organizations or companies within our industry that do have rental equipment. And I have on occasion helped people with that situation where we brought a rental unit on site and we processed the the secondary flow for a period of time, six months or so. So that is available to operators. Cool. And we're going to put your contact information in there so they can ask you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can make sure they get connected. Awesome. Well, I, you know, we've slightly covered the different types of clarifiers, but I wanted to kind of cover the pros and cons of them specifically, like you know, a climb plate, the rectangular and the circular. Can you go over those with us? Absolutely. Incline plate is a clarifier that is mostly engaged in water treatment. And the reason it is, is because the solids that it is clarifying are really fine. They're not very heavy. They have the tendency to not want to settle. And an incline plate accumulates those solids, you know, on a surface to the point where they get so heavy that they now become settleable. And uh, the incline plate clarifier is used a lot in pretreatment for filtration in a, in a clean water plant. Uh-huh. And in a, a drinking water plant, that pretreatment in front of the filters makes operations so much easier. And, and then you're not continually backwashing the filters. So that, that is an area where that clarifier is just almost perfect. The rectangular clarifier was used 
quite extensively in the early part of the Clean Water Act. We suddenly had the federal government say we were required to make secondary treatment. Not everybody was prepared for that. In fact, very few people were. And as a result, they were looking for the most economical way to get secondary clarification. They had primary clarification in rectangular clarifiers, so they decided that secondary, they would just uh, build more of those types of clarifiers. And so there were a lot built. They have the advantage of the ease of construction. It can be done quicker, but more than that, it can be done cheaper. And as you are aware, there are common walls with rectangular clarifiers. You only have to pour one wall in between two instead of two walls. And then also, it's a lot easier to form a rectangular object than a circular object. So that was, I think, the main driving force. However, they do have some disadvantages. And those disadvantages are the principle here is that you take an influent flow, you start at one end of the rectangular clarifier, and you withdraw it on the other end. So you've created the reason for the flow through the clarifier, but then you hope and pray that the solids become heavy enough that they will settle by the time they get to the the end of the clarifier. It is a primary clarifier (laughs) responsibility. In other words, get rid of the heavy solids. Get rid of that stuff that came in uh, as we washed out the sewer. We, we brought a lot of grit with it. We brought a lot of heavy solids with it. And, and in a primary clarifier, that rectangular works. That distance travel will settle out solids. So that it's, it's really good for that application. When we get into secondary treatment, the solids are different depending on the kind of secondary treatment. And we talked about that a bit. If it, if it is a fixed film type of process, that sludge is pretty heavy. The rectangular clarifier is going to do a pretty decent job there. The, if it is a uh, activated sludge process, now we've got a different kind of problem. Less settleable solids. And as we discussed, it requires that we get the sludge out quicker. Because we don't want to release what we worked so hard to bind in yeah. the sludge. So uh, they don't work as well in secondary. And there's one more thing, the removal of scum. That is, is darn difficult in a rectangular clarifier. And most of them that I've witnessed, they accumulate uh, scum in the uh, withdrawal end pretty well. They, they create, it's like a little floating uh, raft of uh, scum in the back end of the, the uh, rectangular clarifier. So they have their disadvantages and they have their advantages. Circular clarifiers, on the other hand, as they've gone through their development, have become much more efficient at, at two things. Number one, they can create an environment where we can induce flocculation. And the reason we can do that is that we can confine the area of the influent flow. We can make sure that the solids find each other almost from the very beginning of entry and that that process goes on throughout the clarifier. 
as it as the flow moves toward the wall and as a result we get much better settling in that secondary clarifier now the other part of that is as processes got more sophisticated and we wanted a sludge to leave even quicker we uh-huh. created different ways to remove that sludge so that we would be able to satisfy that requirement of quick removal. Now, there are several ways to do that. One of them is a segmented rake blade, which passes the sludge from one blade to the next. And in doing that, we, we move the sludge to a central sump, and it's withdrawn. The RAS flow back to the process, or a wasting which we do because we're we're trying to manage sludge age. So those two things happen in the central portion of it. The sludge being passed from one blade to the other, it thickens that sludge so that when it's withdrawn, we can move more solids than we move liquid, which is always more efficient. So that is uh, uh, one of the ways, and it was the early way that we did that. Part of that reason for that is that that's what we used in mining. We used that same process in mining. And we just transferred oh. that equipment to wastewater treatment because those were the companies that were established. Now, you, you mentioned a little bit about the scum. And when you and I talked previously, you, you talked about where to actually return it or how to dispose of it. Because a lot of people, they'll just send it right back to the inlet. Yeah, they send oh, it back is- to the head of the plant. That was done quite a bit in the early design of of plants. And that is not a way to get rid of the scum because you do not get rid of it. It is its own biology. And it it hangs together and it travels back through the entire process and then reappears in the secondary clarifier. And so what you really have to do is remove it from the plant. And the best way to do that is remove it to the digestion process. If you do that, the digestion process will break down that scum and it will be removed as a safe solid from the digestion process. And I think that's great because they're like, oh, this scum issue keeps coming back, keep coming back. I'm like, but you keep sending it right to the very system. <laughs> yep, yep. It's like, oh. Apparently it is, very, it is very precious for you because you are keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's scum. You don't need it. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a bad boyfriend. You don't need it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or girlfriend. Well, girlfriend. No, I, that's all right. Boyfriend. All right. I also wanted to talk about just regular operation. What should you do daily with the with your operation system? You know, um, the first thing I would say is you, ha- if you have a regular routine, that you will check those clarifiers sometime during the week you're on the bridge of those clarifiers and you're inspecting them, you will find lots of things happening. There are several types of sludge withdrawal that need some sort of checking because they require that all of the pipes are uh, empty. (laughs) They have not accumulated sludge. And I'm talking about a a sludge pipe withdrawal, which uh, is is a good way to get the sludge out quickly. Bad things happen within the sludge withdrawal pipes because Uh the velocity dips so low that they start to accumulate sludge in the pipes. So you have to inspect those. More than that, if you're on the bridge and you've got an upset in that clarifier, more than likely you can observe that 
as long as the sludge bed hasn't gotten too deep. Now, evaluation of the sludge bed is critical. If you start to build a sludge bed, you've got an operational problem in that clarifier. Now, there's a great way to do that, and it's called a sludge judge. And you can do that quickly and easily. And it isn't a real big maintenance burden to do that weekly. And if you do that, you'll never get into problems where you all of a sudden have a sludge bed that is so close to the weir that there's nothing you can do. That's what they were talking about. Yeah, you're getting those solids over the weir. Now, there's lots of ways to manage that sludge bed. So once you discover that you've got that problem, it's going to be easy for you to adjust the withdrawal or with or adjust the influent flow so that you're not building that sludge bed. But it's critical to have a system that regularly monitors that sludge bed. Yeah, and I was mentioning I had an experience where I went to a workshop and was with a bunch of chemical engineers. And, you know, we spent an hour going over some really in-depth calculus and, you know, math modeling. And they're talking about how important it is to regulate you and how to monitor your sludge bed every day. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, just walk out there and do a sludge judge. (laughs) You'll know instantaneously (laughs) rather than, you know, build a model of it and get software for it and spend hours on it. And do this kind of, in my mind, exercise of futility when you could just go out and sludge judge. You know, yeah. you're just looking too far here. Yep. I think, I think you know, we, we developed all sorts of ways to anticipate what kind of sludge bed you'd have. And there's lots of ways to do that. And that's what you just detailed, Heather, that, that you can, there are calculations you can make. And you can anticipate what that sludge bed should be. But after that's done, now the ball game becomes a lot simpler, like you just said. Go grab a sludge yeah. judge. Most of them have got marks on them, so you know exactly how deep that sludge bed is. <laughs> you don't even have to carry a tape. <laughs> and then and then you can manage the sludge bed and, and not create upsets uh, that create violation of permit. Let's, let's go on to maintenance. Uh, right. You already talked about, you know, checking it a couple times a year. What kind yeah. of maintenance should we be looking at? Yeah, the maintenance we just discussed is the process maintenance. Now let's look at what other kinds of maintenances are, are really important. Number one is scum with, withdrawal, which it does get to be a problem because scum is, is heavy and it tends to clog the withdrawal pipes. And uh, you need to check that periodically to know that you're withdrawing the scum. The other part of the, the clarifier that is really critical is the, the drive. You have a drive, whether it be a rectangular or circular clarifier, and that drive is running all the time. <laughs> uh, 365 days a year, that is running 24 hours a day. So you are creating a wear problem, and you're creating a problem of durability of that drive. How can we increase that? Well, there are several ways. Number one is if you check the oil in a drive, it will tell you what's going on inside that drive. The color of the oil will tell you if it's on the back end of its cycle or if it's still good. The other part of it is, is if you if you grab a sample and you find 
metal in that oil, you've got a problem within that drive. And it may not be evident that day, but it is coming. And you're going to have to to address a, a failure in that drive. The other thing is, is a drives have a rotational part and a stationary part. Obviously, the stationary part is on the bottom <laughs> yeah. because you <laughs> attached it to the center column. But the distance between those two pieces tells you how the bearing is doing. Every drive will give you in the O&M manual what that distance should be. And it'll be a quarter of an inch or three-eighths of an inch. And when it gets less than that, the bearing is starting to wear out. And you have to now address how you're going to do that. That's a lot easier to do before the drive fails. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> what I recommend it, it also is... Helps if- <laughs> I say it also helps that the operation manual is still around <laughs> as well. That's true. And and I believe that most of the industry now, if you contact the manufacturer, they can get you an operation manual. And and Heather, that's such a good point. You and I have walked into lots of plants and, and you say, well, where's the O&M manual? And they say, I have no idea. And part of what we have found in my experience is that the people that are running the plant were not there when it was started up. It might have been started up 40 years prior to them coming onto the plant. So things get lost or misplaced or put in a really safe place that nobody understands. And we, <laughs> we sometimes, we sometimes don't, just don't have the information that will help us run that plant better. So reach out to the manufacturer. And, uh, you know, the, the Internet has a lot of downside, but it has a lot of upside, too. You can find that manufacturer, and then you can and reach out to them. Most manufacturers are represented locally, too. So once you find the manufacturer, you usually can find somebody locally that might even come out and say hello and, and work through what you really need. So... Uh, that's one of my recommendations is uh, reach out to those people and they will get you the information you need. Most of the manufacturers that I'm familiar with have a whole group of people that do nothing more than service the equipment that's already installed. So that resource is available to you. And if you, uh, if you take advantage of that, you can uh-huh. A replace anything that is has been destroyed but they also are people with lots of experience i mean i'd had over 40 years of experience by the time i got to that group and uh Uh we had lots of experience and we had seen lots of uh failures and we had learned from them and that's the important part if you don't learn from the failure (laughs) exactly you gotta learn from it Well, I've got a perfect record. I've never learned anything from success. All my education came from making a mistake. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about the part where, you know, operators who have need, they're building new clarifiers or they're refurbishing a clarifier. What kind of information do they need to come to the meeting with to talk to the engineer? I believe that... uh, There's no substitute for doing your homework, you know, and we talked about the Internet and how available information is. If you are doing your homework and you are collecting data 
and you have a really good collection of data that demonstrates the problem you're having, then you have just short-circuited the time cycle that you're going to spend with the engineer because you've mm -hmm. already given him the, the types of information that he is looking for. Now, to go one step further, there is no substitute for putting all the people in the same room. Now, during this pandemic, I just went through a, a cycle with a plant in California, and we are trying to get their clarifiers to operate better. And we sat down with two of the engineers from the engineering firm that they use, uh, two of the operators, both the chief, chief operator and the second in command there, and the head of maintenance was there. I was there to represent the manufacturer and also the agent that represents me. Now, we had all these people in the same area. We were six feet apart, but we were all, all within yeah. shouting distance. And we sat down and we talked through all the problems so that when we got through, number one, they had the information and the situation that they were trying to solve, and uh, and it was a, a sludge withdrawal problem. And then the second thing was we had everybody that operated it or was concerned with it in the same area, and so we, we handled all our concerns. We weren't going in and out. And when the meeting was through, the engineer came up with a solution, you know, a, a, a drawn solution in... Well, it was less than 30 days, and that cut the cycle way back, and then we started the project. So that, I think, is one of the great ways to, to shorten the cycle. Now, if, if you're an operator and you know, number one, how your process is, is doing, if you're producing the right sludge, if you know how you're storing the sludge and what that sludge age is, then you have you've solved a lot of the problems the engineer is trying to solve. Now, from a, a standpoint of is the equipment capable of of doing the things that the operator knows have to be done, then that solves another problem, and that problem might engage pumps or it might engage engage structure of withdrawal or feed, and it uh -huh. also might engage uh, some of the the uh, the accessory equipment uh, that is associated with it and I'm talking about scum removal or something other in in clarification so if you're doing that kind of research number one you're gonna know a heck of a lot more about your plant and how it's operating but secondly th that is a way to short-circuit the cycle of getting things fixed now, I want to say this. I've been doing this for over 40 years, and the operation people are better educated and know more about their plants than ever before. And they are an incredible resource to both the engineer or the equipment manufacturer so that we do a better job in treatment. And I applaud all of the operators and maintenance people that have continued their education and can, and do that even now. Even after they have a lot of experience, they never stop educating themselves. 
and it's really making a big difference in how we treat wastewater. I actually really liked what you said about bringing all those different people into the room. The biggest frustration I hear from operators is when like, oh, it's the public works director who's there and, you know, the engineers that are there. But they don't ever ask us, the operators, what we see. And, you know, this could be the lead operator that's not invited to these meetings. And then, of course, they get something that they have to now operate regardless of, you know, what they wanted. So I really love the idea of you bringing everyone in, maintenance in, uh, just to get that knowledge and your information passed back and forth. That's that's uh, very true, and I think Heather, I, I have not, um, I have viewed this over the forty years experience. The engineer, he designs the plant. He's very involved while he, they build the plant, and then the guy that designed it or the guy that was involved in all this, he gets separated from that, and he gets a new project. He doesn't get back to that plant. Now, some of the smaller engineering firms, they are retained and they have a long history with the plant. But I think one of the deficiencies in our system is we take the guy that knew everything about that plant and we say, go do that again. That isn't a bad thing in that that's, we're going to use his experience, but that experience doesn't get back to the plant after that. And we have to yeah. redo that. Well, Let's be smart and let's redo it from the very beginning of solving a problem. Agreed. Agreed. From our previous conversations, we had talked a little bit about tales from the field and some lessons learned that you had. Uh, one involved a goat. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love for our listeners to hear that one. That was awesome. <laughs> well, when I first got involved in uh, wastewater treatment, it was just in the United States, but the companies I worked for were international as well. And so we had the opportunity to design and build a wastewater treatment plant in Egypt. And so we, we, we designed it and we built it, and, uh, and some of us went over there and we helped supervise the construction. But at a point in time, we wanted to make sure that they were totally happy with, uh, with the operation of the plant. So we reached out to them and said, is there anything you want to tell us about how is the plant operating? And okay. they said, well, uh, things are pretty good. Uh, you know, the only real problem we have is the dead goats. <laughs> and we went, <laughs> dead goats? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. S tell me about the dead goats. Well, we knew there was an open channel into the wastewater treatment plant. And uh -huh. the local people, if they lost a goat, <laughs> would just throw him in the channel. And the goats would float down to the wastewater plant. And there was not a way to handle oh a dead goat in that plant until you fished it out. <laughs> and apparently, as Heather pointed out in an earlier discussion, the new guy had to finish fish the goat out. But yeah. it, uh, it was an unusual problem. It, it absolutely got everybody's attention. You know, it, it's always the new guy. The new guy that uh, gets to crawl down or clean the grate screens or something like that. I've been the new oh, guy yeah. myself. <laughs> uh, it's a good way to learn from the ground up. Oh, you'd also mentioned uh, the lawnmower as well. Exactly. We, we, you get a lot of calls and people say, my clarifier isn't working well. And you say, what's wrong? And they say, well, I really don't know. 
So we went out to look at what was wrong, and, and you know, everything looked okay. And we went over to the drive, and, and it, you know, it would operate for a while, and then it would cut out. It would over-torque. Uh-huh. And there's no way, you know, in secondary sludge, you're really pushing duck feathers. There, there's not really any heavy solids in there. So we couldn't yeah. figure out why it was torquing out. We finally said, I know this is a problem. I know it isn't fun, but could you dewater it? So they dewatered the <laughs> they dewatered the clarifier, and there's a lawnmower wedged in between the rake arm and the floor. <laughs> and oh, the, oh my gosh! The, cla- the classic line was, "We wondered where that lawnmower went." <laughs> <laughs> So apparently the new guy got tired of mowing the lawn. Ah, you know, it's funny how we've had a couple stories now in the podcast that lawnmowers have appeared in. (laughs) I'm like, someone needs to lock those down. (laughs) Keep them out of other people's hands. (laughs) Yeah. A a chain around the guy's waist or something. (laughs) Something, something. It makes him responsible. There you go. Okay. Well, I want to transition now into the, uh, our, what I call Wanda's water tidbit. And this is where we celebrate, you know, just the fun and sometimes brilliant, sometimes quirky things in water. This one I, I had heard of before, uh, but have, have you heard of the ice egg or ice ball phenomena? I have. Okay. Okay. I've I don't nev- know if you've seen I've it I've never before. seen it in person. <laughs> I hadn't either, but uh, CNN had covered a story back in February 2020, and I found it when I was researching ice eggs, but it's pretty crazy. Basically, what happens is you have a lake or body of water that freezes, uh, or at least partially freezes, and then these chunks break off the ice sheets, and the wave action sculpt these into rounder balls or shapes. So you can get everything from like a golf ball to like a boulder, like half a person big boulder. And the balls, they, they get bigger and bigger as the water you know, rolls over them and they refreeze and refreeze. And, you know, it happens like in Michigan, it happens in Finland, it happens in, you know, quite a few other countries as well. But when I see the pictures, I'm like, that just looks like a field of of tapioca pearls, cooked tapioca, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just random little balls all over the place. (laughs) And I'm really glad I'm not there with my kids because they'd be throwing them everywhere. everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I just something new to talk about. Oh, over the dinner table. But I wanted to say I really appreciate your time today. You've, you've helped us so much uh, go, going through clarifiers. And we wanted to tell our listeners as well that uh, John's information and contact information will be in the show notes. And so if you need to get a hold of them, you can. The articles and the YouTube videos on the uh, ice eggs will also be in the show notes. And we want to thank you so much for joining us. It has been my absolute pleasure. And I just want to say as a side note, huh? I'm not all that smart, but I know some really smart people. So we'll get the answer to your question. Awesome. <laughs> hey, you know, resources. It's all about resources. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.